0: Well, again, my name is David, and I serve here as a pastor, and I get the privilege of speaking on most Sunday mornings. And uh, last week, we took our first step into the Christmas story. Who was here last week? Who remembers last week? Uh, you ever have those? I was having a conversation with Linda Jordan right before church, and she said, How was your weekend? I said, My weekend was great. She goes, What did you do? And I sat there for like <laughs> 10 seconds. So I was like, What did I do? <laughs> You ever have those moments where you can't remember what you just did the last couple of days? Uh, so I don't expect you to remember everything about last Sunday. Uh, for those of you that were here, here's a quick little reminder. And if you weren't able to be here just to catch you up, we stepped into the Christmas story by looking at two back-to-back stories where the angel Gabriel was sent by God Uh, to bring birth announcements to two very different people. Zechariah, who was an old priest who was married to a wife, Elizabeth. They were barren and they were old in age, advanced in years. And also Mary, who was young, engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. And the angel Gabriel basically brought the same announcement to Zechariah and Mary. He said, you're going to have a baby boy and this is his name. And in Zechariah's case, it was John who would grow up to become John the Baptist. And with Mary, of course, the name was to be Jesus. And we saw that their responses were a little bit different. Uh, Mary believed and she submitted to the will of God, even though this was an earth shattering announcement, to say the least. Uh, Zechariah wasn't as sure and he doubted and he asked for a sign. And Gabriel, the angel, said, I'll give you a sign, but the sign is that you will be deaf and mute until your baby boy John is born. So nine months, uh, um, months Zechariah can't talk. He, he really can't express himself. And the nine months ends. John the Baptist is born. And we get to our text this morning in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67, where Zechariah now can speak. Now imagine not being able to, not being able to speak for nine months. And finally being able to say something. And so let's look at what he says. In verse 67 it says, The father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, saying. So this is a prophecy. This is also most likely a song. He would have sung this. It's called the Benedictus. And this is what he sang slash prophesied. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. That he swore to our father Abraham. He's referencing a covenant that God spoke to Abraham several times, but initially in Genesis 12, that he would be their God and they would be his people, speaking of the Israelites, the Jewish people. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called, now he's talking about his son John, the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah prophesies, he sings this out, and as we look at this together this morning, we're gonna learn three things about God. Three things about this God that the Bible reveals to us. And the first thing that we learn is that he is the visiting God. He's the visiting God. This time of the year, as the holidays approach, Many of us will either host visitors. How many of you are hosting visitors? You have people coming to your house at some point, right? And then how many of you will actually, you will be a visitor? You're going to go and travel and be and spend time in someone's house, right? You know, there's visitation etiquette, right? Uh, How you should handle yourself. Unless you're very familiar with the family, unless they're your family, you probably shouldn't go open their fridge, for example, right? You You should let them do that for you. There's visitation etiquette, but there's also etiquette when it comes to how you host people. And when I got married, I realized that Erin and I have very different um, approaches to hosting visitors. For me, if we're having people over, if we're having visitors over, I'm basically like, I need to get clothes on, and I need to turn the heat on. Like, that's the two primary things I know I need to do. But when Erin knows we're hosting visitors, she likes to clean the house, like, from top to bottom, because she really wants to present. This is a, a clean house, and it's a good place to be, and it's a good place to eat. And I'm just like, babe, I don't know, no one... I don't think anybody cares. And she's, and, and she's like, no, this house is a mess. And I'm like, I'm clothed, and the heat is on, so I think we're, I think we're ready to go. Very different expectations when it comes to visiting. Well, you know, this song is, is bookended by the idea that God will visit. What's interesting is that at the beginning of this song, Zachariah says it in the past tense, God has visited, but in the end of the song, or at the end of the song, he says it in the future tense. It says in verse 78, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And it's almost like, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but it's almost like Zechariah is letting us know what God began, he's going to end. What he's done in the past, he's going to continue to do In the future. And he's really saying to the people of Israel, the redemption that we've sing songs about, the redemption that we've talked about, the Exodus, the return from exile, these great moments of victory under the leadership of David and Solomon and other kings, this this redemption God has done, but he's not completed his work of redemption. He will continue to work and redeem. For centuries, the Jewish people had languished under the conviction or the sense that God had withdrawn. Last week, we talked about 400 years of silence. The the spirit of prophecy had ceased. In fact, when Zechariah prophesies here, it's probably the first prophecy in 400 years. Israel had also fallen into the hands of Rome. They were in the land of Judea, but they were not ruling. They were being ruled. And we know from Luke chapter 2 that all the godly Israelites were awaiting the visitation of God because we see that in the very next chapter the devout a devout man named Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel and a prayerful woman named Anna was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem so the godly Israelites were looking for this visitation these were days of great expectation and now It's revealed through Zechariah's prophecy that the long-awaited visitation of God was about to happen. But it was going to happen in a way that no one quite anticipated, no one quite expected. And we think about a visiting God. I just want to make a few comments about what that means for you and me this morning and for God's people, that God is one who visits. And the first thing is this, we have to realize if God is a visiting God, then that means that God made his way to us. We did not make our way to him. We're not a visiting people who figured out how to, you know, the whole story in the Old Testament of the building of the Tower of Babel to either get up or to create a space for God to come down. There's nothing that we could do to get to God. God had to step out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ to get to us. And this flies in the face of actually most religions and most worldviews. Because most religions say, here's the way that you get to God. Here's the way that you live. Here's the moral standard that you live by. Here's the religious activity that you participate in. And if you do enough things and you do it consistently enough and you get things right and you check off all the boxes, then you've kind of made your way to God. And the Christmas story reminds us, you and I could never make our way to God. God's a visiting God. He made his way to us. The gospel says not here's how you get up to God, but here's how God came down to you and me, so the incarnation reveals a God who made His way to us so that He could make a way for us. Right? He made His way to us so that He could make a way for us. The other thing, when I think of God as a visiting God, is this: that God is not ashamed of us. He didn't stay far away. He He drew near. God didn't keep His distance. He wasn't like a king seated on a throne. He said, "I'll keep my distance from the commoners." He's a king who left his throne and came and lived amongst us. He came near. He's not ashamed to associate with us. And when Jesus walked the earth, as we continue to look in the Gospel of Luke, we'll see Jesus found himself often with the poor, with the outcast, with the sinners, with, with the losers in society. That's who Jesus spent his time with because he was not ashamed to be associated with him. And I'm not trying to call you a loser this morning, but I do want to say this. God's not ashamed to associate himself with you either. He wants to visit you. One author says it this way. This is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. Christmas story shows us that God marches right in, and he chooses people as his instruments, and he performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to the lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. And this idea that God loves the lowly and draws near to those who are uh, brokenhearted, downcast, outcast, not only is that good news for you and I, that's also instructive for you and I. Because if that's how God loves people, then that's how we should love people. There's no one beneath you. There's no one beneath you. There's no one who's gone too far, done too much that God can't reach down, that his grace can't flow down to and find and rescue. So as the church of God, as the church of Jesus, as the people of Jesus, we should be known as people who love the lowly. Wherever the lowly are, the people of God should be showing love, demonstrating the gospel, declaring the gospel. But the other, the other thing we, we realize when we realize this is a visiting God, the other thing we learn is this, that God, because he's a visiting God, it means this, he understands our greatest need. Well, some of you are going to open some presents in a week, and they are going to be things you don't need. There may even be things you don't want. And so you know what you need to do this week? You need to start practicing your, your grateful face. You know, we have three little girls, 10, 7, and 4. Children aren't great at that yet, are they? They kind of let you know what they think of your present. Sometimes even before they open it, they can tell it's closed, right? And they're, they're not very excited about it. But as adults, we, we've kind of matured. We know some etiquette around the Christmas tree. And so you're going to get some stuff that you don't need. But God isn't the sort of gift giver that gives us things we don't need. Everything God gives to us, we need and our greatest need wasn't for someone to simply stand from a distance and, and yell instruction. Yesterday I was over at uh, Wegmans and I was, tonight we're getting together with some of my friends and we're doing tacos, it's taco night. And so I wanted to get some Cotilla cheese. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's a Mexican white cheese and it crumbles and you put it on top of uh, tacos. And so I was looking through the, you know, Wegmans has all their cheeses over there, but there's a lot of them. And I was having the hardest time finding it. It was like, there's Parmesan, there's mozzarella, there's Gouda. I'm like, where's the Cotilla cheese? And so I go over to the lady who's behind, uh, she works in the cheese section. I said to her, I'm looking for the Mexican, the Cotilla, the white cheese. And what I really appreciate about her is that she didn't just go, it's over there. She left her station, she came out, and she walked me over there, and then she walked me right to it, and she, she pointed it out. She probably thought I was helpless, and that's probably why she did it, but, but still, I was really grateful for that. Sometimes I go to stores, and they won't, they won't walk you places. They just kind of point off in a general direction. In John 1.14, it says that Jesus, the word, became flesh, and he dwelled among us. Jesus didn't sit up in a cloud and say, to point, go that way, do, do that, live this way. He came near. And he walked with us. See, because our greatest need was for someone to come and actually live a life as an example for us that perfectly shows what it looks like to image God and to bear his image well, because we don't do it. But even beyond that, we didn't just need an example. We needed the substitute. We needed someone to come and live the righteous life in our place, and that's what Jesus came to do. And so the visiting God reminds us that we don't just need information, which is it's helpful. We don't just need inspiration, although that also can be good, we needed the incarnation. We needed God to become man, to come and live amongst us, and to visit us, and to walk with us. Now, I know that for many, the idea of God becoming man is problematic. The virgin birth, it seems biologically impossible. This idea of God coming in the flesh and I just want to say that if if your worldview if the way you look at the world to make sense of the world uh leaves no room leaves zero room for any supernatural influence on the history of humankind if you if you're a total naturalist and you say there's no God there's no deity there's no there's nothing like that then yeah this is a big problem for you There's no way around it. But if you believe in God or you allow for the possibility of a God that there might be a little more to our existence and to our universe than what we can actually observe, then what that means is anything is possible. Anything. So here's what I'm trying to say. You can't simultaneously believe in a God and then also say something like, ah, the virgin birth's impossible. Because as soon as you allow for a divine being, a God who can step in and do supernatural things, then something like a virgin birth, it's not an impossibility. It's just simply the act of God coming in and doing something supernatural. And this is what he did. He came and he visited us. The second thing that we see in this text is that not only is he the visiting God, he's the redeeming. He's the redeeming God. Zechariah said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and... Redeemed his people. Now this song, this prophecy, it includes about 33 allusions and quotations from the old testament it's loaded with stuff from the old testament and when you read the old testament what you learn is that the idea of god being a redeemer is a repeating theme it's a main theme let me give you some examples the actual exodus when god sends moses and aaron to deliver the people of israel out of egyptian uh, slavery and bondage they've been in bondage for 400 years and he sends moses and he sends the 10 plagues and you know the story they go through the red sea When that's referred to throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's almost always referred to as the work of a redeeming God. God says, I redeemed you, and I brought you out of Egypt. When you read the Psalms you often see that they are speaking of God as one who is a redeemer. And many Psalms actually are filled with prayers asking for and praying for redemption. In Job chapter 19, Job speaks of the promise of a living redeemer. In First Chronicles 17, 21, it says that what separates Israel from all other nations is that God has redeemed them as a people for himself. In Isaiah 43, 1, God himself says, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are Mine In Isaiah 62, 12, and in Psalm 107, seven two Israel is actually described as, if actually are given the title, the redeemed of the Lord. And then Isaiah 59, 20, Isaiah, looking ahead, prophesies of a redeemer who will come to Zion. So redemption is a theme that threads its way through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. And so when Zechariah sings of redemption and a redeemer, it's interesting, because when, when Zechariah is saying of a God who redeemed his people, and he, he sings of it in the past tense, he wasn't just referring to God's Old Testament saving activities. In the prophetic, they would often use the past tense to convey not things that had already happened, things that were yet to happen, but because there was such confidence in God that he would do it, they already talked about it like he'd already done it, right? So the past tense was used in the prophetic to convey a confidence in the certainty of what God would do. But the way in which Jesus came to redeem was a little different, or at least a little bit broader, maybe, than what Zachariah might have thought. Uh, pastor John Piper is very helpful on this. He, he preached a sermon on Zechariah's prophecy, and I was reading it this week. And I want to read to you just a paragraph of what he said. He's a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's an author also. He said this. Zechariah, no doubt, is hoping that the Israel of his day will be delivered from her oppressive Roman overlords, and that Messiah, the King of David, will reign over a liberated Israel. And the disciples, you know, they thought this is what Jesus was about also. It has not yet been revealed to Zechariah that this national political deliverance will not happen at the first coming of the Messiah, but only at his second coming. Nevertheless, we see signs in Zechariah's song that at this time in history, this time in history, the redemption of the Messiah was more than national, national, national liberation. What does this mean? Well, it means that God came to do something for his people, Israel, come to do a work. But this is even more than they anticipated. This is beyond what was even thought or expected. It's not less than it. But it's more than it. In God's supreme visitation in the Old Testament, his supreme act of redemption was, we already mentioned it, the saving deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt, the Exodus. And what we notice when, we, when you read that story, and we taught through Exodus, I think it was last year, and we looked at this story, and what we noticed was this, that Israel's experience of a uh, redeeming, visiting God was not mere God-consciousness but it was actually a concrete historical revelation of God in space and in time. Here's what I mean. Israel did not experience God in just an esoteric, transcendental, uh, mystical sort of ways. They saw him actually do real things in their midst, like he showed up tangible ways, specifically through the plagues, but the ways in which they saw God show up, that God is not a God who stands from a distance, and sort of we get to experience him emotionally, and spiritually, and transcendentally, uh, but we also get to see God's concrete physical work in our place, and in our time, and 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 this is what we're going to see with Jesus, and by the way, this is true of you and me too, that God wants to show up in your everyday life, in your real life, in your boots on the ground messes and the struggles and the sufferings and the pains of your life, God wants to show up. Why? Because he's a redeeming God and he wants to redeem. My 10-year-old Lilia and my seven-year-old Caroline, they take piano lessons from their aunt. And Lilia is starting to play full songs now. And she also sometimes sings the words as she plays. And this week her song is called Money Can't Buy Everything. And so I was listening to her sing, and I asked her afterwards, I said, Lily, read the lyrics to me. And these are the lyrics. Money can't buy everything. Money can't make you a king. Money doesn't bring success. Money can't buy happiness. But the one thing I am sure, money doesn't make you poor. Money doesn't make you sad. Money can't be all that bad. <laughs> It's kind of a cute little out of both sides of your mouth song. And uh, so Lily and I, because I want my girls to think about the lyrics to the music they listen to. I said, well, what do you, is that true? What do you think is true? And so we kind of went through a line at a time. Yes, this is true. Money can't buy everything. Yes, it can't do this. It can't do that. Yes, money doesn't make you poor. It's technically true if you're talk, talking about poor in a, just a tangible sort of way. But then we got to the line that says money doesn't make you sad. I said, is that true? And she's like, I don't, I don't know. So we, we got into a good conversation about how, uh, actually, I think money can make people sad. Because some people spend their whole lives thinking, if I just had more money, I'd be happy. And then they get more money, and they're not happy, and now they're sadder than they were to begin with. And so we're talking about how money can't take your sadness away, and Lily comes out with this. Uh, she just all of a sudden says, but Jesus takes our sadness away. Jesus takes our sadness away. And at first I thought, that's beautiful. And then I was thinking about it more, because i was been working on this sermon, and I thought, is that completely true. Does Jesus take all our sadness away? And I realized, you know, we're in a tension right now between, you know, the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. And we have these promises when we look to the end of the story in the book of Revelation that someday it says God will wipe every tear from our eyes and he will take every sadness away. But what about right now? Does he take all our sadness away? Let me ask you this. Has he taken all your sadness away? He doesn't take all our sadness away. Here's what he does. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's better, But it's what we need. Instead of taking our sadness away, he joins us in our sadness. He walks with us in our sadness and he redeems our sadness. We have the promise someday all the sadness will be gone. It'll be a distant memory. It'll be like it never happened. But right now we carry the sadness. Jesus doesn't take all our sadness away right here and right now, but he joins us so that we're not alone in our sadness, and throughout the Old Testament, God, the redemptive God, He's chosen the people for Himself, the people of Israel, and they mess up, and they make mistakes, and they turn from Him. But God never stops redeeming; He never stops working. He's always working in the nation of Israel to bring about His eternal purposes and plans, and He's doing it here in the Christmas story. And here's what this means for us this morning: Redemption doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to our messes, our mistakes, our failures, our pains, and our hurts. We're not the ostrich with our head in the sand pretending nothing bad happens but instead here's what redemption does redemption doesn't require you to ignore that stuff redemption incorporates that stuff and redeems them and repurposes them for the glory of God and for the good of others this past week we uh, had the opportunity to have a really neat experience with our youngest daughter Madeline Madeline's 4 and if you're new and you don't know us Madeline has cerebral palsy and so she has a lot of physical limitations and My wife, Erin, found this amazing program online called Team Impact or something like that. And what they do is they connect kids with physical special needs with college sports teams. And the college sports teams will um, take that kid into their team as an honorary team member. And so uh, Erin signed up for it. And long story short, uh, Madeline was brought in by the Syracuse women's lacrosse team. And so we actually got to meet them uh, this past week. And here's a picture of Madeline uh, and us, or just Madeline with with the lacrosse team. And they consider her a teammate. And right behind her, where the balloons are, that's her locker. She has her own locker in the locker room and it has her name on it. And they they made her a little lacrosse stick. And she gets to go to any practices that she wants. She gets to go to any games that she wants and just be there on the field near them. And so she's so excited. Like, we're waiting to break it to her because she literally thinks she's going to play. Like, she really is sure she's going to actually play and she's telling everybody that they're going to have to come and yell go Maddie and so but this this is a beautiful um it's a beautiful program that allows her this opportunity but you know as we we spent a couple hours or maybe not quite we spent about an hour with them we were talking with them and and I got to talk with one of the assistant coaches who was uh who actually was a former Syracuse lacrosse player who captain captain the team to the national championship in 1993 and uh we just, he found out I was a pastor. And all of a sudden, he just opened up to me and started talking to me about some physical things that his brother had gone through recently and, and his faith and his wife's faith. And you know, as we were leaving, I thought, like these are, these are interactions and conversations like we never would have had you know, if Madeline didn't go through the things that she went through. Now, you know, that puts you in a tough spot because you look back and you think, well, we still would rather her not have to walk through this. But God, remember, Jesus doesn't take away our struggle. He joins us in it, and he redeems it. And there's so many people, you know, my, my wife has such a gift to, to, to care for people in a similar uh, stage and journey of life. And there's so many people that God's going to give us influence over and in relationship with that we never would have met if we didn't go through the struggle and, 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 the, and really this, the, the physical condition that Madeline has. And what does this mean? It means that God is putting together, he's weaving together a tapestry of redemption And if if he's going to use the pain and suffering in our lives to bring us close to someone who needs to know his love, he'll do it. And he's sovereign. And he gets to make those choices because he has a perspective that none of us have. And so we trust in this God who redeems. Don't ever forget, God doesn't work in spite of your sorrow and your suffering. God works in your sorrow and your suffering. He's the redeeming God. And then lastly this morning, he's the rescuing God. The rescuing God. After Zechariah said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He went on to say, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is a kind of interesting, what is this about? Like, most of you probably, or most of us, if we just read it, raising up a horn, you, you think of an instrument. Sort of maybe the blowing of the horn. But the kind of horn meant here is not a musical instrument. When when Zachariah prophesied that God was raising up a horn of salvation, this was the deadly weapon of a wild ox, and it symbolized strength and power. The lifting up of the horn in the Old Testament always referred to the idea of an animal. You ever seen a bull kind of tossing its horns to show its power? Like, this is what this is about. And the horn is a sign of strength and a means of victory. In Micah 4.13, God says to Jerusalem, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and your hoofs bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many people. He's saying, we're going to give you power, and you're going to have power. And in the Old Testament, you find that there's always a conviction that God is the one who fights for Israel. Even though he sends them out and they go out and they battle and they're warriors, it's God who goes ahead and fights for Israel. When he fights for them, they're victorious. And when they fight alone, they suffer and they lose. And here he's sending Jesus to us, the rescuing God, to really display his rescuing power for his people. He is the one, God is the one who is strong, who gets the victory over the enemies of his people. He is the God who rescues. As God, you know, did you notice it said in there that God will rescue us from our enemies? There are enemies around us, but if we're really honest, there's enemies inside of us too. And only this God can rescue us from both. Only this king can free us, not just from the enemies that oppress us and keep us down, whether it's in realistic like nationalism sort of ways or whether it's in spiritual sort of ways, but also this God frees us from the enemies within us, our selfishness, our, our shame. Jesus is the horn of salvation Because he has the power to secure and protect his people to rescue them. And Zechariah was sure and he prophesied that this Messiah will come in power. He'll be the horn of salvation and he'll be a display of God's power. But as we close, let me ask this question. How did Jesus show his power? How did Jesus secure, protect, and rescue his people? How did he do it? Ultimately, how did he accomplish it with his life? And it's not at all what we would expect. You know, when we think of kings displaying power, I, think of, uh, I always think of that scene from Aladdin when the genie has just made Aladdin into a ruler. And he comes marching down the street and there's, you know, there's that whole song, Prince Ali, mighty is he. And, and uh, he's got all these warriors that are uh, together and elephants doing handstands and all this sort of impressive stuff and all this power. And yet when we get to the Christmas story, the heart of it next week, we'll see Jesus doesn't show up with any of that. I mean, he's born in a scandal. He's born uh, to nobodies from a town that was so insignificant that Luke had to tell his listeners where it actually was located. Born in a place that was shared with animals. What kind of power is this? What kind of display is this? Jesus showed his power by laying his power down. By giving up heaven to come to earth. Jesus secured a people for him by giving up his security. He was pretty secure sitting up in heaven, the son of God. He gave it up. He allowed himself to be wrapped in flesh, to be wrapped in the human experience, and then ultimately to be wrapped in our sin, in our shame, and the wrath of God in our place. And Jesus protected his people by willingly enduring harm, and he rescued his people by allowing himself to be taken. This is the visiting, redeeming, rescuing God. And this is the God that we serve. Now, when you know this God, when you see this God, And when you experience this, God, you know what it does for you? It transforms you. In verse 74 and 75, Zechariah said, we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Now there's, there's layers and levels to this prophecy. So this means different things at different times. But in this context here in the Christmas story, being delivered from the hand of our enemies that we might serve him. I love this. We might serve God without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so, the promise in this prophecy, embedded in this prophecy, is this that God is gonna make us a people who want to serve him, who don't serve him out of fear, but serve him out of love, and who are holy and righteous in his eyes. And there's a transformation that happens in our lives when we know, experience, and encounter this God. And I want you to notice the transformation that happens in Zechariah. Two things, and then we'll pray. Two things. Zechariah goes from, at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, he goes from believing that his barren wife could not have a son to now believing that the Messiah is here. Look at the change in his heart the change in his belief. And the second thing that we see here is that there's a transformation in his heart because even though his son was just born and it was a miraculous thing because his wife was barren, only two verses out of that entire song are actually about John. The rest of it's about Jesus. And the commentators say, you have to notice this, that John or that Zechariah is singing about Jesus more than he's even singing about John, his own son. Why? This song isn't about his son, John. Why? Because when you know the visiting, redeeming, rescuing God, even the very best things in your life, like John, it's not what your heart sings about the most. What your heart sings about the most is Jesus, who he is and what he's done. There's good things in your life, and hopefully you're going to enjoy them this week good family, good food, good gifts. But don't let your heart sing about that the most. Let your heart sing about Jesus the most because he's the God who visits. He's the God who redeems and he's the God who rescues his people. Let's pray together this morning.